This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Well, I think I'll go ahead and start with a little bit of an introduction, and uh, we'll have a word of prayer then, and uh, get started. Hopefully it won't make anybody feel bad for being late. Uh, thank you all for being here early and on time, and uh, I, I know that we have a lot to cover in a few moments here together. Uh, some of this material is material that I've, I've really never shared in this format before, so I'm a little bit uh, curious to see how the time will treat us and uh, how much time we'll have. Hopefully we won't have to be too rushed. Um, we also want to spend some time in questions and answers into the module, as you, as you know, and especially spend some time in prayer. So we do have a little time left over. We won't mind because we do have, we do have a very important work to do in uh, spending some time in prayer together. And I'm glad this conference is arranged in such a way that we can, it's part of the program for us to spend extra time in prayer on a regular basis, all of us. So let's go ahead and um, bow our heads for a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father in heaven, today we are thankful that you've given to us your word, and as we study that word today, we just want to pray that your spirit would guide our hearts and our minds. We know, Father, that we are mortals, you are immortal, our minds are finite, and yours is infinite. Your truth is far beyond our entire comprehension, and yet, Lord, you you ask us to search after you and seek to know you, and so I just pray that as we study your word as we study the process in this first period of revelation and inspiration, that you'll send your spirit to be among us, that you will guide our thoughts and our minds, help us to have strong foundation for what we believe and how we interpret, how we study the Bible. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The way uh, these seminars, I'll just give you an overview of my seminar, I realize not all of you may choose to stay for all three modules, but in this first seminar, we're going to be talking about the way revelation and inspiration works. And this is probably the most fundamental uh, understanding that we bring to our study of the scriptures. Um, We'll be talking about some of the presuppositions in the second part uh, of this module, um, time permitting, that we bring to the scriptures. uh, But of all the presuppositions, the most influential is what we understand inspiration to be, how it works and um, how we define it, perhaps. Um, So we're going to spend some time together. I hope that what we do is clear. Um, Not that I mind questions. That's why we have time for it at the end. Um, But I hope it's not too controversial. I hope it doesn't just muddy the waters in your mind. These are some topics that sometimes we we don't think about a lot. We just assume them. And uh, sometimes actually thinking about them gets uh, questions stirred up, and we're not sure exactly where we stand on some of these things, and that's okay. Um, but we want, to, we want to today try to understand from inspiration itself how inspiration works and how this revelation process comes about. Because our understanding of revelation becomes a necessary assumption, a presupposition for our interpretation of Scripture and its theology. And so this is, this is where we're starting. Um, during the second module, we're going to be talking more about hermeneutical history, the history of biblical interpretation, as you see major 
um, what we say trends in Christian history, and you see how people made mistakes as a as a as a church, basically, Christianity as a whole sort of went one way and then another. You start to sort of you start to sort of see the differences in in the in the different approaches that we could take to Scripture, and then you also start to see wow. There's still those differences in our world today. You know, people do still approach Scripture in these different ways. Even within the Seventh-day Adventist Church, you will find a, a variance as to how we interpret Scripture. So I, I'm a student of history. That's, uh, that, was my, um, that is my, my area of study and um, graduate study. And so I just enjoy a lot history. I hope you will enjoy our brief run through 2,000 years of biblical interpretation. Um, but the, the point is to get us to how we can, we can better interpret the Bible. So when we, uh, when we come to the end of that history in the, in, the, in the first half of the second module, hopefully we'll be there. And then we'll talk about some, some actual interpretation, some of the common maybe variations in interpretation. And we're going to actually be this afternoon taking some of the, of the um, a couple passages and showing how they can be interpreted in right ways and wrong ways. And um, maybe, maybe that'll make it practical for you after all the history you've endured if, if you're there. So that's the plan. Then um, tomorrow the third module is more about actual ways of Bible study, devotions, ways to know your Bible, how to, how to study the Bible in such a way that you're most likely, by God's grace and through His Spirit, to come to a knowledge of the truth. So we begin with uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. And I hope you've brought your Bibles Today, uh, we are going to be spending time in the Bible. I do have some texts, perhaps, on the screen. Most of them are going to be Spirit of Prophecy statements I put on the screen, since we don't all carry those books with us. But the, um, the texts I'll be asking us to turn to, and um, there'll be quite a few, time permitting, that uh, we'll, want to, we'll want to look into. Second Timothy chapter 3, and verses 15 through 17, is Paul's... Um, cardinal passage, you might say, on the nature of inspiration. <coughs> Excuse me. It says, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And then, of course, what would we understand those scriptures to be talking about when Paul writes, we've known the holy scriptures? What scriptures are, is he referring to? He's referring to the Old Testament, right? Because that would have been the scriptures available at the time. All scripture, he says, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now, you notice here this, this word theopneustos, which is basically God-breathed. That's the word translated, um, it, which is given by inspiration. It's God's breath. Now, the word inspiration as a Noun is not actually found in the Bible. So when we talk about inspiration as in a, as in a, in an article, in a noun form, that's not something that we find in the scriptures. But when we talk about inspiration, um, we can see this is where it comes from. And you know the you know the word inspire, expire from medical terminology. You can see that this is related to the Greek, which simply means God breathed, right? God God inspired. Um, from a, in a verb form, it's found right here in this passage. And definitely this verse tells us that God is involved in the origin of Scripture. Would you agree? God is definitely involved in the origin of Scripture. We don't know just from this verse exactly how he did this, but it says that he did. He was, it's given by inspiration of God. And of course it's profitable for those things. Peter also gives us a, 
a, uh, a major text speaking about the inspiration of the, the Bible. And we can turn there to first, uh, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. <clears throat> Are you there? Peter says this, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were what? Moved by the Holy Ghost. So here we see that uh, man did not originate Scripture. Man did not originate the thoughts or even the idea of speaking them or putting them into words. This, this process, which we are going to speak about as revelation and inspiration, is originated by God. God is the one that is responsible. And, and notice that here, here we have a little more detail as to how this process works. It, it tells us that the actual speaking, the actual communication was inspired by God, moved by the Holy Spirit, right? And so there's something that has to do not just with the inspiring of the individual, but with the communication of the message as well. And this is going to be very important as we look at the different models of revelation and inspiration during this hour. It's going to be important that we take these type of clues from Scripture because there are, there are a variety of different views out there when it comes to revelation and inspiration. Now the Greek word there um, is, literally says being moved by the by the Holy Spirit, or um, that's, that's pretty much what the King James translated to, right? Now, this, uh, this passage is, uh, is, is best understood in the light of verse 20, right just before it. Knowing this first, every prophecy of Scripture is, does not come into being from one's own interpretation. And um, we'll be talking more about one's own interpretation as we move on. But we want to hear, we want to sort of just just emphasize that these are the two verses in the New Testament that give us some of the most clear insights into revelation and inspiration. And um, the rest of it we have to, or much of the rest of it, we have to pick up by inference. We have to see how the revelation worked as we study the lives of the prophets, the history of the prophets in the biblical record, as well as, as, well as we look at the pen of inspiration through the spirit of prophecy, and we see the the historical record of the spirit of prophecy's inspiration as well, we begin to put the pieces together and we have a clearer picture of what revelation and inspiration is. Now, I think it's pretty easy for us to agree, right, that God is the author of all Scripture. That's, that's pretty easy for us to all agree upon, I think. Um, the problem is that um, we, don't have all, we don't all necessarily come with the same understanding of what role God played in the transmission of the Bible or of uh, Revelation and Inspiration, and what role the human agent played. And this is where really the, uh, the rub comes, um, because the, the, uh, the understanding of what role God played and what role man plays makes a big difference as to how we actually begin to interpret the Word of God. And so we, we need to look more closely at this from Inspiration. The reason this is so important, and I want to underscore this again, the reason we, this is so important is the answers that we come to as to how that relationship between the divine and the human takes place actually become leading hermeneutical prepositions. And hermeneutics is simply a word for the interpretive practices and principles. It's not a scary word. even It, it sounds all high-fluting, all this, but it just means interpretation, interpretive principles. So 
the answers we determine become leading presuppositions that we bring to the interpretation of the Word of God. Does that make sense? Um, and so we, we, need to, we need to have a, an agreement or at least a, an understanding, discussion of what these, um, what these presuppositions would be. So let's look at some definitions for the purpose of this hour, this discussion here together. I want to say from the start that these definitions are not inspired. There's nothing in the Bible or Spirit of Prophecy that gives us these precise definitions. As I mentioned, the word inspiration as a noun isn't really used in the Bible, just that one God breathed as far as a, um, as a verb. Um, but, and Ellen White uses revelation and inspiration somewhat simultaneously. It's, it's fairly common. But for the purpose of our discussion, we're going to try to divide revelation and inspiration. All right? Are you following along with me? And revelation we're going to define as the process through which the contents of Scripture emerged in the minds of the prophets or apostles. Okay, now I don't know where you're coming from to this seminar. I don't know what your presuppositions are as far as how God inspired or revealed Scripture. So um, I don't know exactly even how to, um, how to couch that in the right terminology so that you understand exactly what I'm saying. But I think as we go along, you're going to see. Some of you may say, wow, that's different than I thought it was. Some of you may, thought, may think, well, that's the, that's the presupposition I always had. I just never thought about it. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things we just don't always, um, we don't always define. When we talk about revel uh, inspiration, on the other hand, we're going to use this definition, the process through which the contents in the minds of the prophets and apostles were communicated in, in written or oral forms. You see the difference? One is God working upon the mind or heart, life of the apostle or prophet to, uh, to communicate knowledge um, or an experience, depending on your definition. We'll get to that. Um, this, the second is how that process, that knowledge, was transferred to other people. Because most of us aren't prophets or apostles, right? Most of us don't have the prophetic gift. And so it's very interesting. It, we're very interested in this process and how dependable that process is of getting the information out of the mind of the prophet and down to us. Especially when we remove 2,000 years in several languages. Um, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's a challenge. Okay, So we want to understand how... That works. Revelation and inspiration. Are you with me in that? Revelation we're going to use as uh, primarily talking about how God communicates knowledge to the prophet, how he educates the mind. One model might be, uh, be best illustrated by. Um, the other is how the prophet then communicates written in written or oral, oral forms. Okay, so um, let's let's uh, Let's look, let's look on at uh, the various models of revelation inspiration. And we're going to try to just go through these as simply as possible. There's only three that we're going to touch on. And then we're going to be looking at what the, what the Adventist position is on these three models. And um, if you're interested in studying further, um, probably one of the most uh, helpful books you would find um, is is the, uh, the latest work by the Adventist Church specifically on the, t on the topic of Revelation Inspiration and Hermeneutics. And um, this is a book called Understanding Scripture. This was published in 2005, and um, it follows up a book that was published at the, uh, 1974, was the last work that the Adventist Church, in a scholarly fashion, did on the um, under understanding of, of Scripture. And um, this is a very, a very good book, and um, 
It's, it's, a, it's a, something that you'd be interested in reading if you're interested in reading further on these topics. Um, it's edited by uh, George Reed. It's from the Biblical Research Institute, um, the Adventist Church. So we're going to be looking at, I guess you might say, what the official church position is as we, as we try to understand. Hopefully it's the biblical position, right? That's what we're wanting to, wanting to find most of all. So... Um, the first model of revelation or inspiration, revelation and inspiration we're going to look at, is a model typically known as verbal inspiration. And um, some of you may be very familiar with this, um, at least in theory. Um, probably within conservative Adventists, if you were to, if you were to examine the, the way they think, I would say that, that um, the preponderance of Adventists probably tend to think more along the model of verbal inspiration. And um, so it's not necessarily... Well, we'll, we'll, look, we'll look more at that, at that model here in just a minute. The, the verbal inspiration model basically says that God dictated the Scripture so that the words of the Bible... You see the words there um, being emphasized? The words of the Bible are the very what? Are the very words of God. Now, when you... When you, um, you'll find a lot of Adventists today that know this isn't actually true. You know, um, it's not something that they will defend. But you'll find that often in their hermeneutical approach to Scripture, the presuppositions, they come treating the Word of God in just that way. And so they're going to hang on one little word, a whole teaching, a whole doctrine, a whole understanding. And um, not only that, they're going to hang that whole understanding on one word in the translated Bible, um, which is even uh, a little more surprising that, um, that, that we can do. Now, the, the sculptor-chisel sculpture analogy is one often used to describe this way of God revealing and inspiring the scriptures. God is the sculptor, the prophet is the chisel, right? And the result is the Bible, right? God pretty much makes sure, supervises the whole process, detailed, word by word. It's inspired. And um, it's infallible. Um, now, as we, as we look at this, uh, there's, there's other ways that it's illustrated. Some will talk about the writer-pen writing analogy. So basically, the prophet is the pen in God's hand. And this is how the, the Bible is given. Um, the, the writer is moved to literally write exactly what, the, the, uh, what God reveals to him. Now, there are a couple of problems that we see with verbal inspiration. And um, if you have questions along the way, um, I'd encourage you to go ahead and write them down and uh, make sure you bring them up at the end of our question period because it might be a little removed after our second presentation um, to remember the questions. But the, the problems with verbal inspiration, well, there's a couple of them. One is that there tends to be a depreciation of the literal meaning of the biblical text in order to see an allegorical meaning. Now, that may not be immediately apparent until you start to study history. And we'll look at that some more in the, in the second module here, study the history of biblical interpretation. But this concept of a, of a literal verbal inspiration of Scripture, where God dictated word by word, leads people who get dissatisfied with the sort of mundane, boring, simple reading of the Word of God to start saying, well, I wonder if he really meant this. 
I wonder if this is all just sort of allegorical. I wonder if this is all just sort of typical. You know, there's some types and symbols here. And in the history, as we look at the history of biblical interpretation, the concept of a, of a verbal inspiration has often gone hand in hand with a depreciation of the literal meaning of the Scripture, the thoughts of the Scriptures, in other words, with a fascination with the words of the Scriptures and what, the, what they could symbolize, what they could figuratively mean, what they could allegorically mean. And I won't get too far ahead of myself when we talk about the, the history of biblical interpretation, but you, know, you have eras of the Christian church where there was fourfold and even sevenfold meanings of every scripture passage. Different perspectives to look at it. And um, the, the, the end result of this, friends, is a undervaluing of the literal meaning of the Bible, what it actually says. Okay? So that's one of the problems with verbal inspiration, that model. The other problem is it brings us to try to defend the Bible as being verbally inerrant. There can be no words out of place. There can be nothing wrong in the Bible. Um, It it leads us to some real problems when we start approaching the Bible from a little more of an educated point of view, a little more of a scholarly point of view. For example, if you read the Bible, the best manuscripts we have today in the original languages, you notice, well, you notice, for example, grammatical errors in some of the writings. I mean, Paul had different scribes writing for him. You see the different writing styles coming out, you know? And so it starts to it starts to um, it starts to call into question the whole idea of inspiration. If the whole Holy Spirit was writing it word for word, choosing the words, then why can't the Holy Spirit get its grammar right? Or why does it get it right some of the time and not other times? Why does it have different styles at some times and than it does at other times? You understand you understand the problem. And so the verbal inerrancy is something that that. Um, that, that causes some problems when you look at it in a little more of an open-minded point of view, when we look at the, the biblical record. Um, there's a couple of other problems I might mention in passing as we, as we move on. One of the problems that we find with, with the verbal inspiration model is that you have a real problem with the whole process of translation. Because if the very words of the Bible were what was inspired, then to translate the Bible would be blasphemous unless you were also just as inspired as the original writer that wrote it, right? And so we would be at a serious disadvantage not speaking the biblical languages if verbal inspiration were the preferred model. Now, I want to say that there's some things that are... um, In each of these models, there are some things that are true. There are some things that are... Maybe you can see the perspective they're coming from. And so, um, in some ways... These models are wrong not so much in what they teach as in what they don't teach, what they leave out. And so before you, before you jump to judgment on these different uh, models, I want you to see them and, and then see what, um, what we as Adventists have, have uh, concluded from our study of the biblical record. Now another model of, of revelation inspiration is that of encounter revelation. Now if the verbal inspiration model, the verbal model of revelation inspiration is what we might call a <coughs> excuse me a far right hand model maybe um, then the encounter method of inspiration is on the opposite extreme it's about as it's about as far opposed they're about as far opposed from each other as you can get 
the encounter model of, Rev- of, of Revelation inspiration basically says that um, God has, uh, a, the prophet has an experience with God on a, not a cognitive level, but some sort of a spiritual level that leads them to have um, a moving of the Holy Spirit to write down some of their experience. And now this uh, theory was first, um, first introduced by the father of modern theology, um, Frederick Schleiermacher. And um, he, he, basically, he basically proposed that uh, this divine human encounter does not impart knowledge. It's, it's something more like a... It's something more like a... Um, it's something more like a non-cognitive spiritual experience. God contacts the person, not through the mind, but somehow through the, through the soul. Now you can see how, you can probably see how already, if this is your concept of revelation inspiration, you will be much more likely to be interested in what we call emerging spirituality, where it emphasizes this contact with the divine, not on a cognitive level, but on a, I don't know if you call a subcognitive or a metaphysical level, where um, they would probably be offended if I said subcognitive, because it's above thoughts probably, not below them. Um, But you understand what I'm saying, where there's a a soul experience, a contact with divinity that's not, it's not about knowledge, it's about the, some sort of an experience, an emotional, physical experience. Experience, and this is where Eastern religions have melded with Christianity, and it really, I think, a lot of it starts with this concept of revelation inspiration. And this is not an uncommon concept of revelation inspiration in the Adventist Church. You have to understand that. Maybe the GYC types, it wouldn't be very common, but um, you you find within Adventism plenty of people who see this uh, as the way God inspired the Word of God, and well, it's not even the Word of God. The Word of God, the Bible is reduced, essentially, to a human description of the encounters that man had with God. And it's, completely, it's, com- it's a compu- completely human cultural development, not a product of the inspiration of God directly. Does that make sense? Are you, are you following what they, what they would teach um, and, and, and not only do they, would they speak of this, uh, this contact with an individual, they would say that this inspiration works not so much on individuals, but on communities. So the whole culture gets moved along, you see. And so this is the way God, God has worked throughout human history. Now, there's a couple, well, we will get to the problems. The Bible is a result of cultural evolution, Human imagination, traditions, and spiritual experiences are the grounds from which it rises. Now, I think for most of us here, probably we don't have too much of a temptation to, to believe in counter, in counter revelation inspiration, right? We don't, we don't have that um, presupposition we approach the Bible with. I think we would be more likely to be coming to the Bible with a verbal inspiration view than with an encounter uh, a view of revelation inspiration. But it's important that you understand this because you will meet people um, I meet them all the time, and um, I don't I don't frequent you know the the most liberal Adventist places, but I meet them on a regular basis. People who sp- this is their presupposition, 
And uh, this is the way they view the, view the Word of God. And it's, this model suggests that the divine human relation takes place not at the cognitive, but at, at an existential or interpersonal level through the soul, as I mentioned already. Now, the problems that we see with encounter revolution, re, uh, re, revelation, let's just notice a couple of them. Since the concept of Scripture originates from the impulse and wisdom of human beings, we must subject it to scientific criticism. In other words, we, I mean, yeah, those Bible writers wrote what they thought was the truth. I mean, obviously, Paul, Paul had that conviction. But come on. We live in a vastly different world today with a vastly different worldview. And today we have a lot more scientific knowledge than Paul had or Moses had or whoever wrote Genesis, you understand. And so today we, we underst- our understanding of God is shaped also by the facts that he places before us, the empirical data. And so we see, we see now, we see things from a much more um, sophisticated, maybe better educated worldview than the Bible writers even saw those things. Furthermore, they were simply exp- uh, 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 detailing or writing out their description of their spiritual journey. We have a spiritual journey too, right? And so, in essence, our own reason and experience, even whether it's cognitive or if it's beyond the cognitive, it's in that um, existential or personal soul level, supernatural level, our own experience is just as valid as their experience. And so, um, Scripture becomes pretty much reduced to a human creation. Now, this is, this is the way a large portion of mainstream Christianity, the older, um, you know, the, the Presbyterian, Lutheran, um, some of the more, um, you know, Calvinist, a lot of the, a, yeah, a lot of the old churches, the mainstream churches, if you take out evangelical Protestantism, much of the Christian world essentially views the Bible this way. Um, the Bible, well, you know, there are some, there's some, there's some uh, general principles that are certainly true. And um, I heard a professor lecture once on how um, the main thought of the Bible is true. You know, the, the, the gospel and, uh, you know, the, the, the life of Christ, etc. But um, was, this lecture was sort of making fun of anyone who believed that the Bible had some sort of a um, protological truth to it to tell us where we came from or eschatological truth to tell us what, how the world's going to end. I mean, that's just, <laughs> that's just preposterous in their thinking. They don't, they don't see the Bible as, being con- as containing that type of information for us. Um, so you can, you can see that uh, there's, there's, uh, there's uh, some very strong... We would have some strong beef with the encounter-revelation method. It's assumed that Scripture contains errors not only in historical details, but in virtually all that it teaches. Now, what does this do to, our, um, what does this do to how we view the Word of God? If this is our presupposition by, by which we approach the, the Scriptures... It gives us plenty of room to doubt, doesn't it? it, it basically, anything that we don't agree with just isn't so. Um, it pretty much takes away any authority from the Word of God 
because we have just as much authority from our own personal experience and our own knowledge, which they didn't even have the benefit of, or so they might assume. Now, um, early Adventists often used um, verbal inspiration as an argument against deism. And, of course, you know, deism was the idea that, that God created the world, essentially, and then left it. Um, so God is a very... Um, uh, uh, what, how, what's, a very distant God, very much removed. He's the, he's the absentee God, very impersonal. That's right. Um, deism, through the uh, evolution of modern theology and so forth, modern thinkers, several, and we'll talk about that more in the next module, um, deism was, was counteracted by um, the idea of a God that was eminent everywhere. In everything, um, we 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 call that pantheism, um, and so these there's sort of a competing models that in the early part of the 19th century, or the latter part of the 19th century, um, were common, and they were models which the Adventist Church was forced to confront because there were those who were who were um, teaching pantheism within the within the denomination, but early Adventists often used a, a verbal inspiration. They they believed the Bible to be the inspired, inerrant Word of God, every word. After the time of Ellen White, even, several prominent thought leaders also promoted verbal inspiration. I'm just going to give you an example of a, a well-respected Adventist thought leader who wrote in 1938, 1935, I'm sorry, um, in his book on the Bible, called God's Book, Revelation is wholly supernatural and altogether controlled by God. Whether dealing with revelation or with facts within his knowledge, the Bible writer required inspiration to produce a record preserved from all error and mistake. So basically what um, Brother Haynes was saying was that even if this was something that he was speaking from his own knowledge about, God inspired it so that every word was factually accurate, preserved from all error and mistake. This was this would be verbal inspiration, and this was this was in 1935 in the Adventist Church. Well, what about when Ellen White was alive? Let's look at some of the things she said about inspiration and try to understand. I think we're probably going to assume that she didn't teach encounter revelation inspiration, right? Um, but what did she teach? Um, if these are the two predominant models in Christianity, did she teach either of them? Notice from 1883, the General Conference Proceedings, published in the Review and Herald, we believe the light given by God to his servants is by the enlightenment of the what? Mind, thus imparting the thought, and not, except in rare cases, the very words in which the ideas should be expressed. Do you see what, do you see what the Adventist Church was saying in 1883? Um, that inspiration gives, uh, works upon the mind of the prophet and gives the thoughts, but not the very words, except in, in rare cases. The, it doesn't give the very words in which um, the ideas should be expressed. And we'll notice what Ellen White has to say about this. And this is a passage that is probably the cardinal passage when we talk about Revelation inspiration in the writings of Ellen White. There's a number of them, but this is probably the most prominent uh, selected Messages, Volume 1, page 21. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired. Wow. That's a, that would be a surprise to some people, right? 
because um, we, we tend to think, even, even though we might not, might not admit it or even recognize it, we tend to think it's the words that are inspired. But she says it's not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired. Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself, who under the influence of the Holy Ghost is imbued with what? Thoughts. So this is how Ellen White describes inspiration taking place. Now hold on to your seats. We're going to try to work through this and so that we, we, we look at the whole picture here before we're finished. But this seems to be something like what we would call thought inspiration, right? A thought inspiration means that the, uh, the Bible, the, 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 the writer is inspired, their own minds, their own thinking is inspired, but then they have the opportunity to convey that in their own human words. Um, let's look at this model of thought inspiration. And um, revelation affects the inspired writer's ideas, teachings, and concepts in their own mind, and they write these down in their own words. And frankly, for the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, I have pretty much just accepted the idea of thought inspiration as being the model of inspiration that Ellen White teaches. Um, it's not until only recently, as I've been reading some of the other things that have been published in the Adventist Church and, um, uh, and trying to study this a little more, that I've recognized that even thought inspiration can be sort of twisted out of context. We'll talk about that just in a minute. Only the bi- biblical writer's thoughts, not the words they wrote, are inerrant. Now, depending on how you read this slide, you may or may not be, you may or may not be seeing the Adventist view. Okay? And um, so I want to just point out some of the problems with thought inspirations if you're reading it the wrong way. Some theologians, they read that and they agree with it, but they create a dichotomy between the words and the thoughts. In other words, it's, they, they would say it's, it's possible for a person's thoughts to be inspired, but those thoughts to never be translated into words to be communicated to us. Um, in, in other words, the person's actual thinking was inspired, but because inspiration did not work upon their words to speak it or to write it, we now have no access to that inspiration God gave them because they're now dead. Do you understand the difference? See, one is to say that the writer's thoughts are inspired. It's another thing to say that the thoughts they wrote are inspired. Do you see the difference? It's a little subtle, I know, but these, are monument, these make monumental differences in how we actually deal with Scripture. If, the writers, if only their thoughts were inspired then we still have room to discount their words because they were only human words. They used their faulty, failing human vocabulary. God wasn't involved in this process of transmitting it into words. He, was simply, he simply inspired them as people. And so you find within the Adventist church there are those who use thought inspiration, believe it or not, but still will argue a non-little creation week, for example. How can they do that? Well, the, the Bible writer understood what he was saying, but he couldn't put it in words that were quite precise enough, or maybe they were, you know, symbolic or something else. But um, it, really, it really surprised me when I found out, I, I figured everyone that was teaching evolution in the Adventist church would be sort of an encounter revelation type of person. 
It really surprised me when I found out there were those scholars who were arguing it from a thought inspiration perspective, simply because they've twisted the thoughts from being the thoughts they wrote to be the thoughts they, they had in their mind. They limit it just to that. And so we're going to see um, what is the Adventist position today when it comes to revelation inspiration. And um, look more at this, this spirit of prophecy here. We read this just a moment ago. We'll reread it, and then we're going to read some of the context. Because, you know, one of the good principles we must learn about interpretation is reading context, right? Context. And we talk about context. What do we mean? The setting, okay? Could be the geographical, historical context. Knowing the author, the audience. It could mean simply... Okay, total understanding. It could mean reading before and after, not just one short sentence, right? Context is... Ultimately, when we talk about taking a verse out of context, we usually mean we've lifted it from the passage, from the meaning that it really intended. Uh, text out of context is a pretext, they say. So when we take that out, then we've taken it out of context and we can make it say whatever we want to say, sort of like the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the fellow who, who was flipping his Bible and, with his eyes closed and putting his finger on a verse. Remember that? method of Bible study. Um, it's not the one I'm going to teach um, tomorrow, but um, nevertheless, um, he found a verse that said, um, Judas went out and hanged himself. And he said, well, that wasn't quite what I was looking for, and so he flipped his Bible more, opened his eyes, and looked what his finger was on, and says, go thou and do likewise. So that's really problematic, so he flipped a few more times, and he found the verse that says, that which thou doest do quickly. And... Um, so we can take a verse out of context, right? And we completely distort its meaning. Um, we, we lose the original meaning of the passage. Ultimately, to understand context, and we're going to be talking about this more as we look at um, principles of interpretation and a Bible study, in order to understand something as context, we need to have an understanding not just of that verse and of that chapter and of that book or letter. We need to have the context of the Bible in mind. And at Seventh-day Adventist, I suggest that we have the greatest contextual picture of inspiration because we have the great controversy backdrop from which we can understand things. And unfortunately, you know, I find many times these uh, wide-eyed prophetic interpreters wanting me to understand something about the next pope that's going to be elected and how many, how many iterations of his name it's going to be and, well, this is predicted in Revelation. And, and I, when I begin to look at the context... And you look at what the purpose of Revelation is, what the main thrust of Revelation is, what you, you start to say, well, it just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. And so ultimately, I'm giving you a little bit of a preview, ultimately we need to not just be studying a few verses. We need to be well read. Read the whole Bible through cover to cover if you haven't. I mean, read it more than once. Read it periodically through cover to cover. And for sure, after reading the Bible, the best, I think, the best reading you can do for context, and this, when I talk about the great controversy theme, is read the conflict of the ages from cover to cover. From Genesis 1, the origin of evil, patriarchs and prophets, to the end of the great controversy, at the end of great controversy, the book great controversy, all five volumes give you a panoramic context in which Scripture is found. And so, um, I was getting off, the, off my point here. Okay, here's, this is the, um, we're going to read the context of this passage. Boy, that was 
a little bit of a deviation. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired. Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself, who under the influence of the Holy Ghost is imbued with thoughts. But let's keep reading. In the next sentence, nevertheless, don't you think that's a pretty important word? When you read nevertheless, you probably, it probably may be some sort of a balancing understanding. Nevertheless, the words receive the impress of the individual mind. The divine mind is infused. The divine mind and will is combined with the human mind and will. Thus, the utterance of the man are the what? Word of God. So, let me ask you a question. Is thought inspiration only working on the thoughts of the prophet? Or is thought inspiration also, is God working in how those thoughts are communicated, whether it's orally or written? It's the latter, isn't it? God is not limiting himself. When we talk about thought inspiration, I don't mind if you use the term thought inspiration to describe your view or model of revelation inspiration. But to find that thought inspiration to be the thoughts that are communicated in Scripture, not just the thoughts that the prophet had. And that's, um, that's an understanding I've only recently come to, that there's that kind of a differentiation between different views of thought inspiration in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The Holy Spirit guided the prophets in the writing process, ensuring that the prophets' own words expressed the message they received in a trustworthy and reliable form. Now, is that verbal inspiration? It's not verbal inspiration. They were still free. Can you, can you communicate the thoughts and the truths without having all perfect grammar? Well, I live down south. And... Uh, People communicate pretty well, you know, uh, without perfect grammar. Um, it's, not, it's not necessary to have everything perfect in order to have what you might call perfect communication. Okay? And um, so God did not have to dictate verbally, word by word, sentence by sentence, punctuation for punctuation, in order for the thought to be reliable. The process of inspiration extended down from the education of the prophet to the communication of the message. Okay, we're going to talk more about how that works. Now, this, this is one way, to, uh, one way to see the Adventist position. It really is a combination of some truth that's in each of the, each of the views, each of the models. That's the way the devil usually works, isn't it? He takes some truth and excludes other truths, and um, it becomes error when it's just one one part, or when it's exclusive. And um, from encounter, we see that there is a personal relationship with God that the prophet has. Isn't that true? Would you agree with me? If you're a prophet, you have a personal relationship with God, a spiritual encounter. I would argue that it's not solely limited to some sort of a metaphysical level or some sort of existential level, but it's a cognitive level too. It's an impartation of knowledge, ideas, um, you really could compare it to the education of a prophet. And um, that's something that takes place over their lifetime and over, as they are, um, they're having these special encounters with God. Through these personal encounters with God, the prophet receives communication, though partial, of a knowledge regarding God and His will. The prophet is then led or corrected as they convey this knowledge through their own words. So from thought inspiration, we see that God's works that God work, God's work of revelation inspiration works on the thought process of the biblical writers. 
From the verbal inspiration, we retain the biblical teaching that inspiration also extends or reaches down to the level of the words. Are you with me? So, the Bible is inspired. The words of the Bible are inspired. Um, That doesn't mean they're inerrant or infallible. They're given to us to communicate thoughts that that are protected, you might say, by the inspiration, revelation relationship that the prophet has. Now, um, let's look a little more closely at how this works. (coughs) How does that revelation take place? Remember, revelation is how God educates the mind of the prophet. So we're going to just notice here, we're not going to spend a lot of time on these because we need to move on, but um, we're just going to notice that there are basically basically five major areas, I, I think some list a sixth, in which God communicates to his people. Um, one is a theophany. You know what that is, perhaps, more than theoph- theophanic. So it's a little more of a, a weird, a strange a form of that word. A theophany is actually a, where God is manifest his presence. Um, you, you think of like the burning bush, right? You think of Moses and the mount, um, where God is actually um, revealing his, his actual little presence to, to the prophet. Um, another is in the, the, the giving of prophecy, prophetic visions. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, for example, had a prophetic revelation, didn't he? Um, not the most likely candidate for a prophet. Um, but God chose to reveal the future of the world. Well, he really didn't choose to reveal the future of the world through him. He, um, he involved Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel's revelation of the future of the world for Nebuchadnezzar's benefit. That's really what happened, isn't it? Um, because Daniel is the one that... Uh, that reminded Nebuchadnezzar what he dreamed and, of course, told him from God's perspective what it meant. You have a few instances in the Bible of verbal inspiration, right? Where God says to Jeremiah, go and say this. And um, that's pretty much word for word. You, you, for the, most, the classic example of verbal inspiration is what? Be dictation. Well, someone said the Ten Commandments, right? That was basically dictating, oh, it was even beyond dictating. It was riding with the very finger of God his message. So that would be a, certainly a portion of the Bible that we would say is verbally inspired, right? Um, at least the, in the Hebrew uh, record that we have. We would also note, though, wouldn't we, that the words which God used as he wrote in fingers of stone were not heavenly language, Right? He, were, he, he gave the Ten Commandments in the imperfect mode of communication that human beings use. Isn't that amazing? And so even though it's verbally inspired, as you might say, or dictated or inscribed with the very finger of God, um, it still comes with some of the liabilities of, of humanity. And then we have the historical writings where some of these um, authors didn't even see what took place. They simply heard it from others. But they were inspired by God to choose those accounts that were accurate and to, um, incor- and to incorporate them into their writings for our benefit. And, of course, wisdom God gives in different ways. Um, and um, this is a, perhaps a different mode of, of inspiration. Now, the, that's how God gives revelation. What about how does God inspire prophets to write or to speak orally the correct message? The goal of inspiration... I have here. The goal of inspiration is not to upgrade the human mode of thinking or of writing, but to ensure that writers do not replace God's truth with their own ideas or interpretations. You know, there's a number of, there's a number of passages that we can look at 
that would give us examples. I want to just turn you to turn with, to, with me to one passage I was studying recently, which I thought was very interesting. When we talk about the historical, um, there are many things that the, that the Bible writers wrote down from their own memory, didn't they? I mean, there's no, evidence, there's no evidence that God gave them a vision of things that happened in the past. Even some of Paul's, um, when Paul writes about the Last Supper, for example, he says, um, he, says he received this from others, you know. Um, he heard this. He understands what Jesus said as he took the bread and drank the cup. Um, and so there's, there's, a, there's a human element that's introduced in the conveyance of these words. Notice with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Very interesting passage here when we talk about the historical revelation or historical impartation of, of knowledge. Um, <clears throat> Sosthenes is Paul's scribe here writing to the church in Corinth. <clears throat> and um, we, see here that, we see here that he's writing in verse... verse uh, let's see, beginning in verse, uh, verse 14... Verse 14, there's been division in Corinth, right? And um, some are of Paul and some are of Apollos and some are of Peter. And he says, I thank God, but I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. Now, Paul is saying that and I can, uh, assuming, we're assuming that um, Sosthenes was writing it down with his probably a fairly primitive by our standards quill pen of some sort, right, dipped in ink and and written on the page. It's not like he could push the delete button or um, pull out an eraser. Um, this was on a parchment of some sort that was very valuable. And so he's writing this letter, and he says, By, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any of you should say that I had baptized in my own name. And, and Sosthenes is writing this all down, and then Paul says, Wait a minute, I also... Oh, verse 16. I have baptized also the household of Stephanus. See, now he remembers... He just said, I didn't baptize any of you except these two people. Now he says, oh, I also baptized this other household, the household of Stephanus. And then, and then he says, besides this, I'm not sure if I baptized anybody else. I mean, Paul's working with an imperfect memory, right? What's that? It may not be. I don't, I've never looked at that. I'd have, to, I'd have to look at that and see which, which uh, it's not in. But the main point, it says in verse 17, is, for, I, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross, lest the cross of Christ should be made an effect. The point that Paul's trying to convey here is not dependent on who he baptized in Corinth. Are you with me? So, so God doesn't always reveal or inspire in this um, thought-by-thought way, even, he's using the mind and the recollection and the thoughts of the writer. But he's going to preserve those thoughts so that anything that's necessary for us, anything that's important to us, is going to be preserved in the text. Now, let's look at this. Um, let's look at this. If, uh, if you read that with this in mind, the goal of inspiration is not to upgrade the human mode of thinking or of writing, but to ensure that writers do not replace God's truth with their own ideas or interpretations. Um, the prophets don't always have perfect memories or grammar or syntax, and the, the Holy Spirit did not intervene to correct minutia. Okay? It's important for us to realize this is where we differ from verbal inspiration. The Holy Spirit did not intervene to correct 
minutiae, things that really didn't, don't matter to the, to the meaning of the passage, the message that we are to understand. Now there's some examples of intervention. We won't turn there um, um, for lack of time. In fact, what time are we supposed, we're supposed to break right now, aren't we? Um, yeah, is it? I think we are. Um, so let's, let's just look at a couple examples of intervention, then we'll wrap it up and close here. Um, Balaam, what did he, what, how did God intervene? You remember, he's built seven altars and offered seven bullock and he went to curse Israel and God put words of blessing, prophecy, messianic prophecies into his lips. God intervened, right? Because he was a prophet. And um, we're going we're gonna to stop at that because I'm going to look at more detail how God intervened, particularly in the writings of Ellen White, to ensure um, accuracy. And we'll, start, we'll pick up this and we'll finish it in the next uh, section. Let's go ahead and take a break. Should we bow our heads for a prayer and then take a five-minute break? Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your word. I pray that as we examine how it's given to us and how it can be trusted, that you'll help us to have a foundation for a, a clear and a proper interpretation of it for our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC. A supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.